thank you very much. And um, I realise that we're coming on uh, now after a very um, stimulating uh, day. Um, and I mean, my brief is to uh, say something about the uh, legal aspects of the uh, strike. And uh, I was going home on Thursday night um, with a colleague, and I said I was looking for some inspiration for today. And I asked him, I mean, what were the legal implications of the uh, miners' strike in 1984? And he said, well, they were massive. And I said to him, yeah, but what were they? And uh, I'm still waiting. So, uh, so yeah, it's, um, I'll just talk through some of the uh, issues uh, as they uh, strike me. And uh, I think uh, one thing is clear, that the employers uh, and the government uh, knew full well uh, what the significance of the law was and what its potential might be in uh, dealing uh, with the uh, dispute. But the first thing uh, to say, I think, is that the the, the use of the law was extensive, and we've heard some of that this morning from, uh, from, from Terry. But the important thing, I think, was that the government did not the, the, the employers, sorry, the employers did not use uh, the Thatcher legislation, uh, which had uh, started in 1980. Uh, and there's quite a good uh, account of this in uh, McGregor's uh, autobiography, which actually, uh, to this day, repays uh, careful reading, uh, just to get an insight into the uh, legal strategy. And the position was that, look, there were two reasons why we shouldn't use the law, although initially they had, uh, and then they allowed the injunction uh, to, uh, uh, to collapse. But the two reasons uh, that McGregor gave uh, was first that we don't want to use the law because uh, it, what it will simply do will be to uh, bring together the, the other trade unions uh, to support the miners. And at the time, it was felt that although there was a lot of sympathy, there was not a lot of support, uh, at least in terms of uh, effective support uh, to bring the disputes uh, to an end. And the other point which he makes, uh, which I uh, checked again after hearing uh, David's uh, contribution uh, this morning was that one reason why we shouldn't use the Tory employment laws from 1980 onwards is that it would help to uh, bring in uh, the Nottinghamshire uh, miners and in a sense it would repel them and draw them into uh, the uh, cause of the uh, National Union. So in a sense a very early decision taken uh, after some hesitation about not using uh, this uh, legislation. So that means we've got to search around for a legal strategy and how is it that we're going to use the law to put some pressure uh, on the uh, union. Uh, and the strategy that was adopted, which again is uh, explained very carefully uh, by uh, McGregor, is to try to use the union's rule book uh, as a way uh, of uh, basically tying the union up uh, in the courts. And the strategy here was to actually go out actively to find uh, so-called working miners and to use them, if you like, as vehicles for the bringing of legal action uh, against uh, the uh, National Union and some of the uh, areas uh, as well. And the part of what he explains quite carefully, that they enlisted the services of David Hart, who went into the uh, coal fields uh, to find the men uh, who would put their names uh, to uh, these uh, uh, legal actions and uh, carry forward 
this uh, litigation, which actually then operated on a number of uh, different fronts. Now, in terms of the litigation, there was, as I said, a number of very important uh, high-profile cases, but there were two cases decided on the same day, uh, on the 28th of September uh, 1984. There were both brought by a man called Taylor, but two different men called Taylor, uh, one against the Derbyshire area and the other against the Yorkshire area. And in both cases, uh, the same judge, uh, Mr. Justice Nichols, who went on to become Lord Nichols of Birkenhead and to take a place in the House of Lords, not for this reason, of course, but uh, in, in, in these two cases on that same day, what I think it's often forgotten is that he ruled that the area stripes in Derbyshire and in Yorkshire, the area strikes, or both the area strikes, were unlawful uh, for different reasons, uh, because they were in breach of the area rules. But he also held, in both cases, that both strikes were part of a national strike, and for that reason were a breach of the National Union's rules, uh, and in particular, uh, Rule 43, uh, which required, I think, a ballot to be held before national action uh, was uh, taken. Now that these injunctions, which were issued not, not in favour of the employer, not in favour of the government, but in favour of working miners who had been supported uh, by uh, forces operating uh, behind the scenes. These injunctions then set in train a series of satellite uh, litigation, uh, which were to be uh, very, very effective in helping to bring the, in, in McGregor's terms, in helping to bring the disputes uh, to an end. And McGregor, in his book, puts these two decisions of the 28th of September as being the most decisive event in bringing the disputes uh, to an end. The three cases which followed subsequently, uh, one was an action which was brought against uh, officials in their individual capacity, and again we heard about this uh, this morning, and the question here was to try to recover from the individuals the money which had been lost during the course of the strike. So the individual officials were to be personally responsible to a refund of the union, which of course, as you so eloquently explained, would be impossible. Now what the court said in that case was that um, the miners' leaders were, as a matter of law, legally responsible to refund the union for the losses which the union uh, had suffered. But in this case, the court would not grant the remedy sought because the leaders in this case had the support of a majority of their members. Now here we have a great contradiction. In a sense, we get an injunction because there's no ballot, but we refuse to grant a remedy against the individuals because the individuals in question have the support of the membership uh, in the case uh, in question. The second uh, satellite uh, litigation, which was uh, perhaps even more important, it was definitely more important, was the, as a result of the refusal of the union to comply with the injunction. 
And what then happened was that the union uh, was fined, uh, Mr. Scargill was fined, uh, these fines were unpaid, so what then happened uh, was that the uh, applicants applied to have a sequestrator appointed uh, to manage the financial affairs of the union uh, to recover the money uh, so that the fine uh, could be paid. So effectively, again, as we heard this morning, uh, uh, city accountants were placed in charge of the finances uh, of the union. And then following on from that, uh, what uh, happened subsequently was for the first time ever in uh, British legal history, a receiver was appointed uh, to administer the affairs uh, of the union uh, to assist the sequestrator uh, to uh, recover uh, the, the money uh, of the union, which by this time had been dispersed across a number of different uh, uh, jurisdictions. So I've got two minutes left. There's another story to be told, and that is the, the story which the... I mean, there's one aspect of this case, but actually three legal points. One is the fact that the, the Tory legislation was not used. The second was the fact that working miners were used in order to serve the ends, ultimately, of the NCB and the government uh, in circumstances where they lost control over the litigation and control of the litigation fell into the hands of others uh, who were not necessarily uh, representing the interests of the union, uh, which was the claim, of course, of the uh, working miners. But there is another story which I think I won't have time to tell, and that is the role which the courts also played in helping the police deal with the picketing. And in a sense, so we have a number of cases, one of which Terry touched on this morning, injunctions against the union to stop uh, mass picketing in circumstances where hitherto there were no legal rules, courts creating new legal rules to deal with the contingencies of the situation, new powers of, stop, uh, of road blocking and stopping uh, flying pickets uh, created, again, not by Parliament, but by the courts, uh, another unique uh, innovation uh, which uh, was taken by the High Court in 1985. Once the problem uh, had been resolved, of course, then these powers uh, uh, simply uh, uh, slipped away. So in a sense, I mean, uh, I come back to the, the question that we started with, what were the implications of the uh, strike uh, for, the, uh, for, for, for the law? And in a sense, I mean, my understanding, uh, just looking back, and there are many parallels between this strike and the strike in 1926. My understanding is of what we have, one last point, is of what we have here uh, in this uh, strike was an attempt by the state to reassert the authority and the sovereignty of the law. And that authority and sovereignty had been lost in the 1970s in ways that we had uh, heard uh, this morning, in the sense that the trade union movement had given the police uh, a bit of a, a beating, they had given uh, the courts a bit of a beating, and they had given the government a bit of a beating. And what we have here is a concerted effort on the part of all three to regain the authority and to use the rule of law as the instrument by which that authority would be regained and restored. Thank you very much. Thank you.